welcome to this week's podcast for the Doctrine and Covenants. We'll be dealing with sections 125 through 128. This correlates with the curriculum in Come Follow Me for the week of November 1st through November 7th. I'm David J. Ridges, your host for today. I am the author of the uh, Made Easier series, and will just mention that we've just finished the four-volume set, third edition of Old Testament Made Easier. This is an exciting curriculum for Doctrine and Covenants that we'll be studying this week. Let's go ahead and dive right in with section 125. This revelation was given through the prophet Joseph Smith in March of 1841 at Nauvoo. When the saints were driven from Missouri and began settling in what became Nauvoo, some of the saints settled across the Mississippi River west from Nauvoo in the territory of Iowa and began establishing settlements there. Church leaders had arranged to buy 700 acres in Illinois, in what became Nauvoo, and around 18,000 acres of land in Lee County, Iowa Territory, again across the Mississippi River just to the west of Nauvoo. With large numbers of saints fleeing persecution elsewhere, having these large tracts of land available for settlement was most helpful. It obviously allowed the members to find home sites and begin building without overcrowding certain locations. It's interesting to note that branches, uh, branches of the church were established in Iowa Territory in Zarahemla and Nashville, uh, that's near Montrose, Iowa. They also settled in some smaller settlements near the existing settlement of Montrose. And by October 5th of 1839, the Iowa Stake was created. About a year and a half later, as mentioned above in March of 1841, the prophet Joseph Smith received this revelation after asking the Lord about the settlements across the Mississippi River in Iowa Territory. The main question you'll find is in verse 1. We'll read that. What is the will of the Lord concerning the saints in the territory of Iowa? The answer comes starting with verse 2. Verily thus saith the Lord, I say unto you, if those who call themselves by my name, that's an interesting phrase. It means simply members of the church who have taken upon themselves the name of Jesus Christ through baptism. The verse goes on, and are essaying to be my saints. In other words, essaying in this context means attempting or endeavoring or striving to be worthy members of the church. If they will do my will and keep my commandments concerning them, 
In other words, if they truly want to be obedient, let them gather themselves together unto the places which I shall appoint unto them by my servant Joseph Smith. Now that's a very interesting uh, doctrine actually there. Uh, here the Lord uh, sustains his prophet Joseph Smith and asks the people to check with Joseph Smith to see where they should settle and get any other questions answered. But the Lord is sustaining the prophet and telling the people he will have inspired instructions for you, same as today with our prophet and all of the brethren of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve especially. They are prophets, seers, and revelators, and we can look to them for guidance. And the Lord does sustain them as they give us counsel and guidance. Now, verse 3, Let them build up a city under my name upon the land opposite the city of Nauvoo. Again, that's across the Mississippi River west of Nauvoo. And let the name of Zarahemla be named upon us. So they called the settlement that was near Montrose, Iowa, Zarahemla. And at one time, it had over 300 members living in it. Next, in verse 4, we see another principle of the gospel. In many situations, we are free to choose. And verse 4 says, let, And let all those who come from the east and the west and the north and the south that have desires to dwell therein take up their inheritance in the same. In other words, those who desire to live in Zarahemla are welcome to do so. Going on with the verse, as well as in the city of Nashville, or in the city of Nauvoo, and all the stakes which I've appointed. So did you catch the principle? The principle is mentioned several times in the Doctrine and Covenants, for instance, in section 60, verse 5, concerning several options for the folks mentioned there, the Lord simply says, you decide, and then the quote is, it mattereth not unto me. In other words, in many of our situations in life, uh, it doesn't make really much difference what we choose to do. And the Lord says, it mattereth not unto me. And so here, they can decide whether to live in Nauvoo or go across the river west and settle in Zarahemla or any of the little uh, communities west of the Mississippi River for the time being, at least. So it mattereth not unto me. There are many things where we need to use our own uh, wisdom and our own brain power to make decisions. Now let's go ahead. Uh, we'll mention that these settlements west of the Mississippi uh, lost a lot of population fairly shortly because people actually wanted to be living in the Nauvoo area where they could actually help on the temple and many other reasons for that. Now let's go to section 126. By way of background, 
This revelation was given through the prophet Joseph Smith to Brigham Young, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles at the time. Brigham Young was one of those who studied the Book of Mormon extensively for a long time before he actually decided to be baptized. In fact, uh, he studied the Book of Mormon for two years. And then finally, after having thoroughly studied it and determined to be baptized, he was baptized in his own mill pond by Eliezer Miller on April 15, 1832. He traveled extensively on missions for the church in Upper Canada and several eastern states, including New York. He faithfully participated in the March of Zion's camp from Ohio to Missouri in 1834. He became a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles on February 14, 1835. He left Montrose, Iowa on September 14, 1839 to serve a mission in England. Then on July 1st, 1841, by the way, you can see he's been very, very busy and traveled extensively since he was baptized. In July of 1841, after he completed his mission to England, he came home and rejoined his wife, Mary Ann, and his children who were living in Nauvoo. So he's been very, very busy, and now in this revelation, the Lord tells him to send other missionaries abroad. We'll see that in verse 3, and to stay home with his family from now on. By the way, one of the things we see here is the fact that the Lord is keeping Brigham Young closer to the prophet now, no doubt to train him to become the next prophet. Uh, Brigham Young will spend 28 of the last 36 months of the prophet's life in very close contact with him. And on July 9th, 1841, that's about three years before the prophet's martyrdom, on July 9th, 1841, Joseph visited Brigham in his home and dictated this revelation to Brigham Young. Verse 1. Dear and well-beloved brother Brigham Young, verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servant Brigham, it is no more required of your hand to leave your family as in times past, for your offering is acceptable to me. I love that statement. Your offering is acceptable to me. That's one of the things you and I want to strive for in our lives, that our lives can be in harmony with the will of the Lord so that our offerings are acceptable to him. The Lord goes on in verse 2, talking to Brigham personally here through Joseph Smith. I have seen your labor and toil in journeyings for my name. Verse 3, I therefore command you, in other words, this is not a suggestion. This is a command to Brigham. It must have been kind of hard for Brigham to settle down and stay home after having done so much in so many places. So this is a pretty strong 
bit of counsel. Verse 3, I therefore command you to send my word abroad. By the way, he's the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and that's one of his responsibilities. I command you to send my word abroad and take especial care of your family from this time henceforth and forever. This is a tender and sweet revelation, very definite to Brigham Young, and we, in hindsight, can see why the Lord kept him extra close to the prophet Joseph Smith. It was his time of special training. Also, think what a relief it was to his wife, Marianne, and his children to have Brigham home. Now, let's go on to section 127. This is a letter written by the Prophet Joseph Smith to the saints in Nauvoo, Illinois, dated, as you can see in your own scriptures, September 1st, 1842. At the time Joseph wrote this letter, he was in hiding in the home of John Taylor's father in Nauvoo. Persecution against him had increased in Illinois, and repeated attempts by Missourians to trap him and take him to Missouri had forced him into hiding. Uh, Missourians, lawmen from Missouri, were constantly coming over the border and trying to trap Joseph Smith and rush him in captivity back to the state of Missouri where they could have their own way with him. In the first two verses of this letter, written from hiding, yeah, where Joseph had to hide from the persecutions, especially Missourians coming into Illinois. In the first two verses, we get the insights into how indomitable and cheerful our prophet Joseph Smith was. Uh, he was, uh, his mother had said, uh, long ago that Joseph, when he was young child, he was a very cheerful personality, and it has carried on, uh, and we see it here in verses 1 and 2. We'll go ahead and take the time to read these. Uh, you might want to follow along in your own scriptures. Verse 1, for as much as the Lord has revealed unto me that my enemies, both in Missouri and this state, meaning Illinois, were again in the pursuit of me, and inasmuch as they pursued me without a cause, and having not the least shadow of coloring of justice or right on their side, in the getting up of their prosecutions against me, and inasmuch as their pretensions, by the way, prosecutions, uh, they're trying to use the law to capture Joseph Smith and take him back to Missouri. And inasmuch as their pretensions are all founded in falsehood of the blackest dye, I have thought it expedient, in other words, I feel it's necessary, and, and wisdom in me to leave the place for a short season for my own safety and the safety of this people. I would say to all those with whom I have business that I have left my affairs with agents and clerks who will transact all business in a prompt and proper manner and will see that all my debts are canceled, in other words, are paid off. 
in due time by turning out property or otherwise, as the case may require. Are you noticing that Joseph Smith is very concerned that uh, people that he's had business dealings with him and to whom he owes money, he doesn't want them to think he's hiding and running from them, trying to avoid paying off his debts. He just wants them to know that he's hiding because of threats to his own life. He goes on to say near the end of verse 1, When I learn that the star storm is fully blown over, then I will return to you again. Verse 2 has one of my favorite statements about Joseph Smith by himself. We'll get to it in a minute, but it has to do that he's used to swimming in deep water. Verse 2, And as for the perils which I am called to pass through, they seem but a small thing to me. In other words, he has quite a perspective. As the envy and wrath of man have been my common lot all the days of my life, and for what cause it seems mysterious, unless I was ordained from before the foundation of the world, for some good end or bad, as you may choose to call it. Judge ye for yourselves. God knoweth all things. God knoweth all these things, whether it be good or bad. And here's my favorite statement, one of my favorites. But nevertheless, deep water is what I am wont to swim in. In other words, deep water is what I am accustomed to swim in. It all has become a second nature to me. And I feel like Paul to glory and tribulation. For to this day has the God of my fathers delivered me out of them all, and will deliver me from henceforth. For behold and law, now watch this optimism on the part of the prophet. I shall triumph over all my enemies, for the Lord God has spoken it. Now I love verse 3 because it's a message to all of us. You've heard our prophets uh, several times uh, say, in effect, that they are optimistic about the future. You've heard our prophets, President Monson, for instance, say, enjoy the journey. And uh, all of our prophets encourage us to be realistic but optimistic, ultimately, about life and about the future. And so there's a major message for us in verse 3, where it says, Let all the saints rejoice, therefore, and be exceedingly glad. For Israel, Israel's God is their God, and he will mete out a just recompense of reward upon the heads of all their oppressors. Now, in verse 4, and we've got to move along, so we have time, especially for 128. In verse 4, he counsels, again, he's in hiding, and he counsels the saints, while their prophet is not available, to continue the work on the Nauru Temple. Verse 4, and again, verily thus saith the Lord, let the work of my temple and all the works which I have appointed unto you be continued on and not cease. You notice that uh, it's quite common the nature of people, if their leaders are 
away and maybe they don't even know for sure when they're coming back or if they're coming back, they will stop work on whatever projects their leaders had asked them to be working on. So Joseph's counsel here is for them to keep working on the temple and on all of the other things that uh, they have been instructed to do and not to sl slack off because he's not there. And in uh, verse 4, And if they persecute you, so persecuted they the prophets and righteous men that were before you. For all this there is a reward in heaven, and that's something you and I can rely on also. We'll go quickly uh, to verse, uh, let's go ahead and go to verse 5, where he brings up the subject of baptism for the dead, and we'll see more about that very specifically in section 128, verse 5. And again, I give unto you a word in relation to the baptism for your dead. Verily thus saith the Lord concerning your dead, that's verse 6. When any of you are baptized for your dead, let there be a recorder. So now he's adding a very important part of keeping records. And we use this today. Each of our temples has a recorder. And often they have assistant recorders also to be eyewitnesses for the work that is done in the temple for the dead. Um, verse 7, that in all your recordings it may be recorded in heaven. An important topic next in verse 7, whatsoever you bind on earth may, that whatsoever you bind on earth may be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth may be loosed in heaven. That's a key factor in what the ordinances we do here and uh, by the power of the priesthood and the keys of the priesthood our temple ordinances are effective in heaven and it's very important again verse 9 to keep proper records and Joseph will say a little more about this uh, in verse 11 uh, verse 9, let all the records be had in order that they may be put in the archives of my holy temple to be held in remembrance from generation to generation, saith the Lord of hosts. And uh, verse 11, I now close my letter for the present, for the one of more time, for the enemy is on the alert. And as the Savior said, the prince of this world cometh. That's a quote from John chapter 14, verse 30, meaning that the devil is much involved in the persecutions of the church and of the saints. But he hath nothing in me. In other words, he'll not take me. And we'll do more with uh, the book of Revelation saying to, that we will be judged out of the books, the records that are kept here on earth. There will also be a record kept in heaven, and we'll do a little more with that shortly. 
Let's go right into section 128. Let's use a little background to it. As was the case with section 127, this letter from the prophet was also written while he was hiding. This time he was hiding in the attic of Edward Hunter's home, which was accessed by a trap door. I really feel sorry for the prophet, the kinds of things he had to go through. This is one of them. Uh, there was not even enough room in the attic of Edward Hunter's home for Joseph to stand up. Uh, in the History of the Church, Volume 5, page 146, we read uh, some more about this. Quote, President Smith was accompanied by Brother Erastus Derby, left Brother Whitney's about nine o'clock and went to Brother Edward Hunter's, where he was welcomed and made comfortable by the family, and where he can be kept safe from the hands of his enemies, close quote. A little statement from the history of the church uh, reminding us that Joe Smith was in hiding at this point and was in a place where he couldn't even stand up. He was, as you may already know, uh, six feet tall and weighed around 200 pounds. Now, uh, there's a wonderful reminder of how revelation can come to us, one of the ways that revelation can come to us here in verse 1. Joseph Smith says, verse 1, section 128, as I stated to you in my letter, that was section 127 that we just read, as, was sta as I stated to you in my letter before I left my place, that I would write to you from time to time and give you information in relation to many subjects, I now resume the subject of baptism for the dead. As that subject seems to occupy my mind, and here's the key phrase as to one of the ways inspiration can come to us. That subject seems to occupy my mind and press itself upon my feelings, the strongest since I've been pursued by my enemies. Have you ever had something on your mind, do this or do that, or call someone, or don't do that, and it just stays on your mind? It presses upon your mind. You can be pretty much certain that that is inspiration as long as the Spirit confirms it to you. Well, uh, that's a major message. Uh, there are many definitions and many doctrines here in section 138. In the time that we have, we'll move through several of them. You've probably heard uh, the Book of Life referred to. You've read about it in the scriptures. What is the Book of Life? Well, uh, Joseph Smith will define it for us here in verse 7. Uh, but let's back up to verse 6 and read the quote that will introduce us to the definition of the Book of Life given in verse 7. 
starting with verse 6. We mentioned that we'd be with John the Revelator in the book of Revelation a few minutes ago. Verse 6, section 128. And further, I want you to remember that John the Revelator was contemplating this very subject that would be the records that we keep, that John the Revelator was contemplating this very subject in relation to the dead, when he declared, as you will find recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, quote, I saw the dead and small, I saw the dead, small and great, in other words, relatively unknown as well as famous, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. By the way, that's the record of our lives, which is kept in heaven. We'll see that in verse 7. Going on with the verse. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. Verse 7. You will discover in this quotation that the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. But the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Consequently, the books spoken of must be the books which contain the record of their works and refer to the records which are kept on earth. And the book which was the book of life is the record which is kept in heaven. So there you have the definition of the book of life. It is the record which is kept in heaven of our lives and our deeds and so forth. Well, let's uh, move on here. We'll go to verses 8 and uh, at least the first third of verse 8. Here we go, section 128, verse 8. Now, the nature of this ordinance, talking uh, here about proxy work for the dead. Now, the nature of this ordinance consists in the power of the priesthood by the revelation of Jesus Christ, wherein it is granted that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Or... In other words, taking a different view of the translation, whatsoever you record on earth shall be recorded in heaven, and whatsoever you do not record on earth shall, be not, shall not be recorded in heaven. For out of the books shall your dead be judged according to their own works, whether they themselves have attended to the ordinances in their own propria persona, in other words, in person, or by the means of their own agents. And by the way, that's proxies, and you and I uh, know much about doing proxy work for the dead in the temples. According to the ordinance which God has prepared for their salvation from before the foundation of the world, in other words, baptisms for the dead and temple work for the dead. That was all part of the plan of salvation presented to us in our pre-mortal life. Now, let's uh, 
go ahead. I'm looking at the clock here. Let's see what else we can come up with in section 128. And Valerie, I'll have you probably delete that, and I'll, I will uh, redo it now. Let's go on to uh, some more doctrine about baptism for the dead. And also, first, in verse 13, look at why baptismal fonts, especially in temples, are generally uh, put below ground. We'll go straight to verse 13. Uh, and hopefully you've noticed that wherever possible, our baptismal fonts anywhere are constructed so they are below ground level. There is symbolism in this, and it is explained in verse 13 now. Verse 13, consequently, baptismal font was instituted as a similitude of, in other words, to symbolize the grave. So our baptismal font symbolized the grave and was commanded to be in a place underneath, in other words, below ground level where the living are wont to assemble. In other words, it's below ground level, wherever we are. To show forth the living and the dead, and that all things may have their likeness, and that they may accord, in other words, agree or harmonize one with another, that which is earthly conforming to that which is heavenly. Now, our baptismal fonts, by way of summary, are below ground level to symbolize that we die, we are buried, and then in the resurrection we come forth out of the grave. The symbolism is we bury our old sinful selves now, little children don't have old sinful selves, by the way. They are innocent, and when they are baptized, it is for the remission of future sins, because, as we know, little children are not accountable until they begin to be accountable at age eight. So, but the symbolism is we bury our sins, they become dead to us. We come forth in life, living with the gospel and being made alive spiritually and having all the options to continue progressing towards exaltation. Now, verses 15 to 18 are the most referred to verses in section 128 and deal with baptism for the dead. Let's just go ahead and read verses 15 through 18, and we'll comment quite a little bit as we go along. And now, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation. He's going to tell us that our salvation depends on whether or not we 
are willing when we can to do work for the dead and their salvation then is tied to us and our doing it. We often say that when we do work for the dead and we are proxies for them, we are indeed saviors on Mount Zion. So Joseph Smith says these are principles in relation to the dead, verse 15, and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation, for their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation, as Paul says concerning the fathers, that they without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. You might want to cross-reference this in your own scriptures with a similar verse, uh, reference and phrase in verse 18. Now, you'll remember that this concept of doing work for the dead is new and perhaps even startling doctrine for a lot of these early saints. However, the prophet helps them understand that it is not new. Rather, it was taught by the Apostle Paul in the Bible, as well as being a part of Elijah's mission, as prophesied in Malachi. So, here in verse 16, the prophet Joseph Smith reminds these saints that this is not a new doctrine, and he reads uh, from 1 Corinthians 15.29. And in verse 16, it's quoted, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? We often use this on our mission, and it's really a, a wonderful verse in the New Testament that can be used to maybe get non-members to be a little interested in our message. Now, verse, <clears throat> verse 17, and again in connection with this quotation, I will give you a quotation from one of the prophets who had his eye fixed on the restoration of the priesthood, the glories to be revealed in the last days, and in an especial manner, this most glorious of all subjects belonging to the everlasting gospel, namely, the baptism for the dead. For Malachi says... Last chapter, verses 5th and 6th, quote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Sometimes we find herself wishing that the prophet Joseph Smith had clarified and rewritten almost every verse in the Bible. In verse 18 next, uh, we see that he could have done much that is in that regard, but, but it was not necessary in many cases. And Joseph says in verse 18, referring to the verse, uh, the quote from Malachi that we just read, Verse 18, I might have rendered a plainer translation to this, but it is sufficiently plain to suit my purpose as it stands. It is sufficient to know, in this case, that the earth will be smitten with a curse, in other words, won't fulfill its ultimate purpose 
of providing the opportunity for exaltation in family units for all who qualify, went on with the verse, unless there is a welding link of some kind or other between the fathers and the children upon some subject or other. And behold, what is that subject? It is baptism for the dead. And here he says it again. This is very important, and it's a good motivator for us to get to the temple and do proxy work to help save them. It is, what is the subject? It is the baptism for the dead. For we without them cannot be made perfect. Neither can they without us be made perfect. Neither can they nor we be made perfect without those who have died in the gospel also. For it is necessary in the ushering in of the dispensation of the fullness of times, which dispensation is now beginning to usher in, that a whole and complete and perfect union and welding together of dispensations and keys and powers and glories should take place and be revealed from the days of Adam even to the present time. And not only this, but those things which never have been revealed from the foundation of the world, but have been kept hid from the wise and prudent, shall be revealed unto babes and sucklings in this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. One of the things I love about President Nelson, he keeps reminding us that the restoration is ongoing. And if you understand that, then it doesn't shock you when something we've done in the past for years or even decades or whatever is changed a bit or revised. It's part of the ongoing restoration, and it reminds us that there is continuing revelation. Well, we've got to... Uh, bring this to an end, uh, just remind you that in verses 19 uh, and 20 and 21, uh, there Joseph reminds us and his people to whom he was writing this letter uh, of many of the marvelous visitations from beings from heaven that were involved in the restoration of the church through the prophet Joseph Smith. Now, one last doctrine. When we look at Doctrine and Covenants section 13, which has just one verse in it, uh, where John the Baptist restored the Aaronic priesthood to the prophet Joseph Smith and all of the Calvary, uh, I'm going to read it quickly here, uh, where John Baptist restores the Aaronic priesthood. He says, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth, 
until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. And we run into many discussions on this uh, section 13, wondering who the sons of Levi are. Well, in verse 24 of section 128, the answer is given. And I'll give it to you in advance, and then we'll see how that's derived from verse 24. We, members of the church, authorized priesthood holders, uh, are the sons of Levi. By the way, we would remember that righteous sisters in our day Righteous women uh, perform priesthood ordinances in the temple for the women there. So we are the sons of Levi. Let's finish by reading verse 24 and doing a little explaining. Behold, the great day of the Lord is at hand. In other words, the second coming of Christ is getting very close. And who can abide the day of his coming? Who will survive? And who can stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire that, by the way, the refiner's fire was used and is used to purify gold and silver and get rid of the slack by heating it up so hot that everything melts and you scrape the slack off the slag off the top. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. By the way, fuller's soap was a powerful soap made and used in biblical days in getting clothes clean. So it's like a fuller soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Here we go with the answer. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness then the definition of who are the sons of Levi is the next verb, sentence. Let us, therefore, in other words, let us, the sons and daughters of Levi, let us, therefore, as a church and people and as Latter-day Saints, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So there you have it, the sons of Levi. We are the sons of Levi. We have the keys to priesthood and performing ordinances, the saving ordinances of the temple where we do proxy work to save our ancestors. And so we are asked, he says, let us therefore as a church and a people offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Let us present in his holy temple, and so on and so forth. I bear witness that the doctrine and covenants, with the help of the Spirit to teach us, is an absolutely precious and priceless and basically infinitely deep source of education for us in the ways of God and his plan of salvation. And I leave that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.